weeks. Um, Jonas last week and Steve and Ruthie, uh, missionaries we support in Northern Africa, were here the week before. I'll tell you what, Jonas is a hard act to follow. Um, I was kind of praying that something cool would happen to me this past week so I'd have like some more street cred like Jonas has with all the cool stories he told about on the run from bad guys and bullets flying and stuff like that, but nothing cool happened. So anyway, it is what it is. But, but I, so I, as we've been reading through Matthew and I haven't been preaching the last couple weeks, this is, this is one of the problems when you're a preacher is that there's so much you want to talk about and you know, Sunday only comes once a week. And uh, so I want to go, and I want to be in a lot of the book of Matthew. Um, I want to end up kind of, Lord willing, around the Great Commission, which is actually part of your Bible reading plan for tomorrow. If you're doing the Bible reading plan, one chapter a day, five days a week, we'll get through the New Testament all this year, and I'm just kind of taking one of those and preaching on them. But the very end of Matthew chapter 28, whenever you're reading a book of the Bible, beginnings and endings are important. And so one of the ways to kind of get the big picture of what the author is talking about, the inspired author, um, because even though God is inspiring it, and yes, ultimately God wrote the Bible through the Holy Spirit that he used human agents to speak, and they had agendas in their writing. And so where somebody starts and where somebody ends is important, and they're kind of taking you on a journey through that. And where Matthew is going to end up at the end of his gospel is in this passage that's that's pretty famous, and if you call Mercy Hill your home church, I hope that you've heard this before. I'm confident that you have, but it's usually referred to as the Great Commission. So Jesus has now risen from the dead, and in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's what you do with the risen king. That's why we just got done doing what we just did. We worship him. First and foremost, priority. They worshiped him, but some doubted. There was still doubt mingling in some of their hearts, okay? Uh, which just goes to show the, the depths of our sin. Verse 18, and Jesus came and he said to them, and he gives them this commission. It's, it's this final command, although there's promises woven in here. And then, boom, that's the end of Matthew's book. And so all that Matthew's written before this, I believe, is kind of coming to this climactic end here to where he sends the, 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 the people out, Okay? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church, this is, this is the great commission. Making disciples is not a mission of the church. It is the mission of the church. That's it. We are to make disciples. And while there's a lot that could be said here, and there have been thousands and thousands of sermons preached on this passage, um, what I want to look at this morning is when the disciples would have heard, go and make disciples, like, like what would that have looked like? What, what would have come to mind? And what should come to mind for us if we have followed Matthew through his journey of this gospel? Is what, what should we hear? And what we should hear when, when Jesus says, and Matthew leaves us with this command to go and to make disciples, I believe is this life of Jesus that we've just got done reading throughout, throughout the gospel of Matthew. Is that what it looks like to make disciples is to form people into the image of Christ. And I, and I want to talk about this morning three things about the nature and the character of God that Matthew kind of 
sets up for us here. Again, in, in all of the gospel um, accounts, the gospel writings, they write with an agenda. Um, they have certain emphases that they put upon the life of Christ, although you can never be exhaustive when you're talking about Jesus. There is no end to his majesty. There is no end to his glory. There is no end to, to who he is. Yet in the gospel of Mark, Jesus comes across pretty much as servant. In Luke, he focuses more on his humanity. And in John, he focuses on his divinity, that he is God. And in Matthew, uh, the first thing, if you want to flip back to the beginning of Matthew, chapter 1, there's kind of three layers to the identity of Jesus that I think Matthew weaves in here that he wants us to see. The first one is that Jesus is king. That Jesus, that Jesus is king. And there's three aspects to his person that I want to pull out and then get to the end where it kind of informs the way that we make disciples. First of all, Jesus is king. Matthew starts off with a genealogy. How exciting is that? And so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But that's what Matthew does, and he does it for a purpose. He, he connects it, that, he, that he's, he's mainly writing to Jewish people here as an evangelistic tool to reach them, and he wants to connect with them that Jesus is an heir of Abraham and of David. David was kind of the greatest of Israel's kings. It was prophesied that the Messiah was going to come, was going to be the son of David somehow, and so Matthew connects it to that, to his kingship and to his Jewishness. We know that Jesus is not just the king of the Jewish people, but he's the king of all people, the king of us, the, the Gentiles as well, because he died for us. But you see his kingship there, and then at the beginning of chapter two, a story which of course is always just usually read at Christmas time, but it's way much more than a Christmas story. And this is where our cultural Christianity sometimes kind of robs us uh, of some of the meaning and the depth and the beauty of what they're trying to communicate. But at the beginning of chapter two then, you have the story of the wise men coming. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And immediately, Matthew's going to set up Jesus' kingship over and against and kind of opposed and contrasted with the kingship of Herod, who is a wicked king, who hears from these wise men that another king is coming on the scene, and so he exercises all of his power to destroy every baby, two and under, baby boy, two and under. He commands that they be killed, that they be murdered. And so we have this one type of king born in a manger. We have another type of king in a palace using his power for evil and not for good. Not only does Matthew, though, present Jesus as king, he also presents him as Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is important. End of uh, chapter 1, after the genealogy, before the story of the wise men, you have this prophecy uh, taken from the book of Isaiah. Matthew quotes it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us. All the names in the Bible, they usually mean something, especially the names that are about God. Here's one of the names of God. Emmanuel. He is God with us. Emmanuel. Again, end of verse 23, which means God with us. So now you've got, he's a king. Now you've got this king 
that is with us. Okay? So he's begin to, be, beginning to layer these things out. He's not, he's not a king who's just hidden away behind some castle wall. He's not a king who just lives in some ivory tower, not amongst the people. He is a king who is with us. And there's one more dynamic that I believe Matthew emphasizes more than, than anything else as you read uh, throughout his gospel, although there are plenty of other things, uh, many other aspects to the person and work of Jesus Christ that he talks about. But the last one is that Jesus is servant, that he's, that he's a servant. Now in the gospel of Matthew, let me show you where I'm getting this from and just get ready to flip with me here through a couple of different texts through the book of Matthew. Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, quotes the book of Isaiah, okay? Isaiah is an Old Testament book, Old Testament prophet. Um, it, the Bible says in 1 Peter that the prophets of old used to search and inquire carefully, seeking to find out what person or place that, and time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the Christ was going to come, okay? And so these prophets of, of old, if you've ever heard this about uh, kind of the, the Testaments, the way that they work together is that it says that the new, the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. You're welcome that that rhymes. Easy to remember, okay? But so all this, this New Testament truth, it's in the Old Testament, but it's kind of concealed. You don't see, and so these, these prophets were writing, and Isaiah was one of these prophets, and they're like, we know this Messiah is coming, but, and, and they're, they're trying to give as much as revelation as God is giving them to, to, to try to understand this. And one of the ways that Isaiah describes this Messiah who's going to come is that he's this servant. And so all of a sudden, as you, as you read kind of the arc of, of Isaiah's storyline, you have this, this servant that God keeps speaking of, my servant, my servant, my servant. He's going to come. And so I believe Matthew picks up on that, and he quotes from the book of Isaiah more than any other author. And, and let me just give you a couple of places, but you find this in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8. Okay, Matthew chapter 8, if you want to turn there real, real quickly, verse 17. I'm just going to do a quick survey through the book, get ready to flip. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's a quote from Matthew, or I'm sorry, from Isaiah chapter 53. Very famous passage of scripture. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time here. It's 11 verses, but it's worth reading, so just listen, okay? It says, who has believed what he has heard from us, or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Jesus probably wasn't that good looking. He wasn't a Saul. He wasn't head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord, God, Yahweh, 
to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of anguish of his soul. Speaking of Jesus. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, and here it is, my servant, my servant, make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Matthew quotes, I believe it's verse five there, in verse 17. This continues on if you'll flip over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Here, he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. Again, speaking of this servant who's going to come on the scene. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18 through 21, a quote from the first four verses in the book of Isaiah chapter 42. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim, proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you guys know what that means, that imagery there? A bruised reed he will not break. So pretend you, like you had like a big reed like, you know, down by the water or something like that, and it was half broken off. But Jesus is gentle. He's going to come. He's going he's to care for it. A smoldering wick, a little wick that's just about to go out. It's burning, but it's just about to go out. Jesus doesn't go, just pinch it. He blows on it. He brings it, he brings it back to life. It says, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so Matthew is again, he's stopping throughout his letter to show these places where Jesus is king, he's the king who is with us, he's Emmanuel, but he's also the king who came to serve. Go to Matthew chapter 20, and you kind of have this theme now of this king who is with us to serve, I believe kind of coming to <coughs> maybe not a, a final crescendo, but a very high point. <coughs> in Matthew's story, when you have this, this story of James and John, and they bring their mama with them. They want something from Jesus, but they don't want to ask for it. They want their mama to ask for it. You talk about not having street cred. I mean, like, after this, it's like, you know, why would you, anyway, bring your mama along. Come on, guys. Anyway, chapter 20, verse 20, says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something, and Jesus says to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. They want position. They want status. They want authority. Yeah, Jesus is on the throne, but one's on the right, one's on the left. We're right there with him. Okay? And Jesus says, you, you, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it has been for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard this, excuse me, the rest of the disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. My kingdom is different, Jesus is saying. My kingdom is different. It's not like the kingdom of this world where the rulers, they have authority, they have power, and they exercise that authority to control. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, so you can be great in the kingdom. It's good to want to be great in the kingdom. It's just that you have to want to be great the right way. You have to want to be great like Jesus was great. 
Verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You're like, does that really mean slave? Yes, it really means slave. That part of your identity is that you view everyone else as somebody that you are called to serve, not that they are your slave and that they are called to serve you. Pretty much all, we, we, we fall into one of these two camps in every uh, situation and circumstance, every encounter that we have with somebody. We're either viewing them as somebody that Christ calls us to serve in the way that Christ has served us, or somebody that exists to serve us because, well, we're special. Jesus says, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to, what, be served, but to serve. Even as the Son of Man, the King, Emmanuel, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then at the beginning of chapter 21, one of the very next stories that you see, here you see now this king who is with us, Emmanuel, the king Emmanuel, who is among us to serve. Here he comes, riding on a big, fine, white horse with a bunch of pomp. No. He comes in riding on a donkey. Now, I'm not a horse guy, okay? Horses, I just, everybody's always like, my horse is nice. You can ride my horse. It won't do it. And then I get on it, and the thing takes off, and I just, I hate horses. So I don't know. Maybe donkeys is where I need to look to. I don't know. But, but here he comes, riding on a donkey. And this, again, was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. Again, very specific. Jesus fulfilling these specific prophecies so that it would be clear to those who are familiar with the scriptures that we would know who he is. It's one of the reasons you need to get in the word so that you can know what the word says about Jesus so that you recognize his activity among you and in your life. Chapter 21, verse 5, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king. Let's see, look at all three. You got the king, you got Emmanuel, and you got the servant. Say to my daughter's eye, and behold, your king is coming to you. He's among you, Emmanuel. Humble. Humble as a servant. Mounted on a donkey and on the colt of a foal of the beast of burden. One, here's all I want to say is that what Matthew wants us to see, the profile of Jesus that Matthew is building, is that Jesus is the king who is among us to serve. He is the king who is among us, Emmanuel, to serve. And this truth about who he is should inform and influence and impact every area of our lives. And, but let's just talk for a minute. Again, I want to talk about how this should inform our discipleship, but I don't want us to miss the gospel here either. It, it is unbelievably good news that we have a king with power and with authority but he does not use that power to manipulate for evil or to control us in an evil way but he uses his power and his authority to serve The world needs a leader like this. I got news for you folks, it's not gonna happen 
on a worldwide level until Jesus comes back. It's probably going to happen in some sort of twisted way with the Antichrist. But it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. There's only one who has the power and authority to rule not just the world but the entire universe and to do it in total love. And it's Jesus. And he gives us no excuse not to trust him. He shows us that he's good. Again, Matthew at the beginning kind of puts him over and against this King Herod who used his power to take life. Jesus used his power and authority to give life so that in giving his life that we also could have life. Herod used his power and his authority to keep himself in control and to make everybody look and bow down to him. Jesus comes and he washes our feet and he cleanses us. You know, it's such good news that Jesus knows what our greatest need is, even when we don't. Do you know that? I heard a great definition of, of what it means to be a servant leader a while back. I forget who said it. But they said it's taking the initiative to do what you know needs to be done in someone else's life, even if they don't recognize it. I mean, think about your story. Think about when you were saved. Think about how you, when, you, when you came to know the Lord. Like when things were in crisis and there were some things in my life that, were, that I didn't realize it at the time, but, but that God was drawing me to himself through situations and mo most of them sin situations, messes that I had created. I thought that my greatest need was to just get these situations fixed, but that wasn't my greatest need. My greatest need was to know Jesus see, what's so incredible about Jesus in the gospel story is that like the whole way through here, people recognize that he's different. I mean, he speaks with authority and he's healing people and even his enemies recognize this. But, but the thing is, even those that were closest to him, his, his disciples, those that he had called into his inner circle, they didn't even fully realize what they needed. They thought that their greatest need was for him to defeat the Romans. They thought that their greatest need was to maybe be elevated like, like James and John, not just from you know, some average Joe guys, but man, let us sit, one on your right, one on your, one on your left. Because you know, we're good dudes, Jesus, and if you give us power and authority, like we'll rule with you, we'll be on your team. They didn't even know what their greatest need was. Their greatest need, just like our greatest need, was to have their sins forgiven. And so Jesus takes the initiative to meet their greatest need before they even ask for it. They don't even know how much they need this, yet he goes out of his way to meet that need at the cost of his life. That's what it means to serve. That's what it means to be a servant. And we have access to this king he's approachable how many of you would like to have access right now to some political leaders in our country we have access to this king he's Emmanuel he's the king that is among us he's the king that we can we can we can see we can approach 
that we can come boldly before his throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. All in all, one of the big things I just want you to hear here in that Jesus is our king who is among us to serve is, guys, he's given us no excuse not to trust him. Amen? There's no excuse not to trust him. We want to act sometimes like he's failed us. And sometimes we want to act like he's wronged us. He has never wronged anybody. He hasn't. And I've talked about this before, but I just want to say that sometimes in the Christian life, one of the very real temptations that you will face is you will face the temptation to believe the lie that Jesus has wronged you in some way. Maybe through a painful circumstance or a relationship or whatever it might be, you will think that maybe Jesus hasn't done what he's promised to do. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie. He's, he's never failed. He has only ever worked to meet your needs. And see, when you see that even way back then, when he went to the cross to meet their greatest need, the I, I, thing I want you to get here is I hope this maybe helps bring a little bit of clarity to what might be going on in your life right now. Because if you're, if you're in a situation right now where there's turmoil, where there's chaos, where there's confusion, where you feel like the rug has been pulled out from underneath you, the disciples, as you continue to read Matthew's gospel, are gonna feel like that in just a little bit when Jesus is arrested and when he goes to the cross. They're gonna feel like the last three years of their life have been a total waste, just a, just a total hoax. That man, they left everything, they dropped their nets to go follow this Jesus, and now, man, things aren't working out the way that they thought they were. Man, was, has this been a total waste? Has God failed? No, God is meeting their greatest need. And in your life right now, if you feel like things are chaotic, if you feel like things don't really make much sense, I want to tell you that if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, he's going to work right now in your life to meet your greatest need. That's what he's doing. Now, I don't know exactly how it's all going to work out. I don't know exactly what all the details are. But if you have trusted Christ, he works everything together for good. Amen? And right now, because he's risen, seated on his throne, still doing now in your life, in our lives, what he did 2,000 years ago when he came, he is working to meet the needs that we don't even know that we have. Amen? And this is why we need to rejoice always. We need to pray in all circumstances. We need to be giving thanks always. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Because he's going to carry it on to completion until he comes back because he is the king who is among us to serve. Now, the Great Commission. Go back to Matthew 28. Quickly, just want to show you that some of these things are still at play here in kind of a subtle way. Number one, in verse 18, you see the idea of his kingship and his authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a statement. It's true. It's a promise. Like it all authority, it's his. There's no other authority above his authority, okay? His kingship. Secondly, that he's Emmanuel, that he's God with us. What is the promise that he gives at the end of the Great Commission? The promise that he gives, he says, I am with you always. He wasn't just Emmanuel when he came 2,000 years ago. He's Emmanuel now, today as well, too. Amen? He's with you. He is the king who is with you. 
then I think the service part is what Matthew wants us to see in these commands that are for us. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. The first word of command in this commission is that we need to go, just like Jesus did. The greatest missionary who ever lived was not David Livingston or Dwight L. Moody or Hudson Taylor or even the Apostle Paul. The greatest missionary who ever lived was Jesus. And if we're going to emulate his life, then we need to go. Why? Because he, he goed, he went, he left from heaven. And he came to earth. And he left the majesty and the comfort and the splendor of all that he had there. He came to be among us so that we could see him, so that we could touch him. And listen, guys, over the last couple of weeks with Steve and Ruth sharing and with Jonas sharing about his experience in Mozambique and just, and just thinking about the church in other parts of the world and the nations, <clears throat> like I, w- I want to ask you this morning, do, do you take this command seriously? Do you take the command, because that's what it is, it's a command from our king who has all authority. Do you take this command to go and make disciples, do you take it seriously? You've heard me say this before, but I think that most of us, most Christians, generally speaking, they look at the Great Commission as kind of like a side hustle. It's something that they're doing in their part-time, you know, and they're trying to just do a little extra, but this is the main thing over here, whether it's job or money or family or whatever. Brothers and sisters, we are not being faithful to Jesus Christ, and we are not emulating or reflecting the life of the king who was among us to serve if we take the Great Commission as a side hustle. Well, Eric, are you telling me that I need to go to Africa or to Russia or to Asia? Maybe. Maybe. That's not for me to decide. That's for the Holy Spirit to decide in you. But maybe. But for many of us, where we need to start in reflecting this king who was among us to serve in the way that we make disciples is by simply organizing all of our life around this one mission. Not as a side hustle that we squeeze into the cracks of time when it's convenient. I I was talking with some guys this past week, you know, like, I just, I don't, and listen, I'm not the perfect example of this. I try to be definitely, I'm selfish, and at times I prioritize myself and my own wants and needs and desires above that of the kingdom, okay? We've all, we all do that from time to time. But, you know, I don't, like, does the Great Commission have any impact or influence or bearing on the home that you buy, where you live, the job that you take, the way that you spend the, your time, the way that you spend your money? the way that you fill out your, 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 your calendar. This is, this is not the call of just a few full-time pastors or a few full-time missionaries. This is the call of each and every individual person who is a disciple that we make disciples. And it doesn't happen by accident. 
Jesus didn't sit in heaven and was just like, well, you know, I, man, I want to oh, do something, but man, I got this going on over here. So he, he, he was intentional. Discipleship takes intentionality. That you are going to arrange your life around this mission of serving others by meeting their greatest needs. And listen, yeah, we'll meet physical needs and spiritual needs and you know, just meet with people and, you know, if they, if they have, you know, it's, if it's financial or whatever. Like, like we want to do that stuff. But I'll, let me tell you something. Just like Jesus knew our ultimate need, we know what their ultimate need is. Their ultimate need is to know Christ. And that we would arrange our lives around this mission of day by day, week by week, meeting with people to pour Christ into them. To pour the word of God into them. It's not just gonna happen by accident. The Great Commission is not an option and it's not a suggestion, it's a command. This guy named Brad who's been coming to the church lately, I've just met him here over the last couple weeks. And I just wanna give you an example of just how simple this is. Because I think, I'm, I'm always afraid that when I start talking about this type of stuff, that you just overthink it and make it way more complicated than what it is. But Brad has just been arranging his, Brad likes to lift weights, work out, whatever. So he's doing that, but here's what he's doing. He's being consistent in trying to go to the gym. And then again, maybe not everybody can do this, but for him, this works. He, he goes the same time every single day just so that he can see the same guys every single day so that he can begin to build a relationship with them and share the word with them. He's just taking what he's doing and he's being intentional in it. This is where you need to start. Being intentional about making disciples because Jesus was intentional in coming to serve us. It didn't just happen. Here's another question for you in regards to the Great Commission. Are you driven more by the desire to achieve status or to offer service? Are you driven more by the desire to achieve status or to offer service? James and John, they wanted to do this ministry thing because they wanted status. They wanted people to say, yeah, man, Jesus is the Savior, but man, James and John, Jesus is lucky that they're on his team. We, We have to be faithful with where we're at and with the people that God has given us. Parents, if you have kids, that's where you start. And again, I'm not saying just, just start there so you can get on to the real ministry. That is the real ministry. That I think, and listen, there are no perfect parents here, amen, including myself. But I think where a lot of parenting has fallen short is that we've viewed it as kind of like just being a buddy rather than being a disciple maker. The parents, your kids don't belong to you. Just like everything else, they belong to God. And they're given to you to try to steward as best you can. Now listen, in the end, I don't want to put any unnecessary pressure or condemnation because in the end, it's the spirit of Christ that has to work in their hearts in order to bring about real life and real change. And he will do that but we're to steward it for his honor and for his glory. 
Let me ask you this. In regards to making disciples, do you, do you use your power and your authority to serve people or to control people? Every single one of us in this room, even though you may not think that you do, you have a measure of power and authority because you have influence. You have people that you influence. And every time you come in contact with them and influence them in some way, you're either doing one, or two, one of two things. You're either using your power and your authority to influence them so that you can get them to do what you want them to do, that's control, or you're serving them. You're laying down your life for them and you're using your power and your authority to love and to care for them. One of my favorite books, I, I feel like I quote this to you about once every couple months, but, or something from this book, but uh, Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin, it's a book that's on my nightstand, and I've, I've read through it a couple times, and I just have it there, and I just, I keep reading through it just because it's, it's so good. But they talk about how whenever we use um, our power in a negative way, or our authority in a negative way, that it has negative fallout in our lives, and they compare it to uh, power that's used to create energy. So whether it's uh, you know uh, gas that we burn in our engines, there's there's pollution, or coal, you know, there's pollution from that, or nuclear energy. Here, here's what they say. Let me just read it. They say the source of our power always entails a reaction of some kind. Coal power, for instance, has the negative fallout of pollution. Nuclear power has the unfortunate effect of creating dangerous waste. The power we tap into is no different. The power from below, from the way of the world, the power from below radiates a certain waste product and a pollution into our souls, shrinking our capacity for love and undermining our ability to really attend to others. The sad irony is that using this way helps us in the short term to get ahead in this world, but in the long term, it undermines our ability to flourish. That was gold right there. Because every time you use your power or authority to control somebody, what's happening in your soul is that you are somehow elevating yourself above them, making yourself ruler, making yourself supreme, and them existing to serve you. And what you're doing is you're creating identities than people. We talked about this in our small church this past week. We were reading through Matthew uh, chapter 23, which is where Jesus gives these, these seven woes to the Pharisees. Here's one of the things that he says to them. He says to the Pharisees, you do all your deeds to be seen by others. It says they love to make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You are to call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. He says it again. Same thing we just read in chapter 20. 
But see what the Pharisees did was they created these different categories. You know why religious folks like being religious? Because the rules that they set up, they're good at keeping those rules. They don't care if you can keep them. They want to adhere to the rules that they're good at keeping. Because if they can keep those rules, then they're up here and you're down here. And now all of a sudden, if they're up here and you're down here, and this is the standard that they keep these rules and you can't keep these rules, then you know what? They are a little bit better than you. And so now all of a sudden, you've been put in a place of servitude to them. But in Christ, there is none righteous. No, not one. And every single one of us needs a Savior. Amen? Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. And I just want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And man, we, the Lord is just gracious. And again, we, we just had a wonderful time of worship this morning and singing. And hopefully just giving a little bit of a survey of Matthew here. And we're going to sing again. But brothers and sisters, I, I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just simply want to give a little bit of space to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit pressing on your heart this morning in these moments? What's he saying to you? How is your life not like the king who came among us to serve? Is there a person, is there a group of people that you have a good deal of influence in their lives, but you've been using that influence not to serve them and show them Christ, but instead you've been trying to get them to serve you. If that's the case, here's what you do. You just repent. Don't make it hard, because it's not. Confess that to Jesus right now. Maybe it's that God's been pressing on your heart now for several days, several weeks, several months, that you need to go. Maybe it's not to the other side of the world, but maybe it's just across the street to talk to your neighbor. Maybe it's just going and scheduling an appointment to meet with somebody at a coffee shop and share something with them that God wants you to share. You need to repent this morning, maybe, if that's the case. Not being intentional. Of maybe being a little bit spiritually sluggish or lazy, slothful. I've been there so many times. <laughs> the Lord's pressing something on my heart and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And three months later, I still haven't done it. Just one other thing as we close, I, I guess, and again, just ending with the gospel. I, 
If you're here this morning and you just feel you feel dirty, you feel sinful, you feel unclean in God's presence, I just want to tell you this good news is that just like Jesus was the king then, he's the king now, just like Jesus was Emmanuel then and he's Emmanuel now. Jesus was the servant then. And this is amazing, but I'm telling you, he's still the servant now. And he is still willing to come to you and to put a towel around his waist, just like he did with the disciples on the night of the Last Supper, and to bend down and to wash you and to cleanse you. And brother, sister, if that's you this morning, you feel dirty, I'm going to tell you, even though you, you, you might feel just so bad because, man, I, I can't come to him again. I can't because I can't, I can't believe I fell again. He'll still cleanse you. There, there, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go but to him. And I would just encourage you and exhort you to run quickly to him this morning. Let him wash you again. Father, as we look to the example of your son, King Jesus, who came among us as Emmanuel to serve and to give his life, Lord, I want to pray for us at Mercy Hill that you would make these qualities that you see in Jesus, I pray that you would make these qualities evident in the culture of our church. I pray that when people would come here, Lord, that they would find not just an individual or two, but an entire group that exists to serve them, to care for them, to love them, and to ultimately serve them in the greatest way, which is to point them to you. Lord, I really want you to change us. Not that I think we're terrible at these things, but Lord, I, I don't, I don't want everything that we do to just be a side hustle. I want all of our lives to be built around making disciples. For your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me, we'll sing.